You're listening to a resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much that we are able to come together and have you speak to us about very important things. We pray now, Lord, that you would give us energy and a clear mind so that we might block out the things that we're carrying around in our heads and just spend this moment to engage with you together in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the most frustrating answer you'll ever get on a support website is the three-letter reply. Read the manual. Uh, It's particularly frustrating these days because we don't usually get manuals when you buy things. Have you noticed that? Now, I remember, I think I'm at the age now where I can often say this in the start of my, my sermons, okay. I remember way back when, back in the early 1990s, I bought some software for my computer, some desktop publishing software, right? And it came in a box, I kid you not, so you believe me kids, it was this tall, that wide, that deep. It was about this big as a box, right? And it had 30 floppy disks. You can look those up on the internet and see what they were. Um, and five manuals, five big books. And one of them was so cutting edge that it was a clip art directory. And so if you wanted to pick clip art, you would look through and you'd find the picture and then you'd have the file name and you'd put in your floppy disk and you'd type in the file name. Oh man, cutting edge stuff. It, was, it, was, it felt good to be alive. Back then, we knew what manuals were. We knew that when you spent a grand on a bit of software, you were going to get something that could actually lift and hold, you know? But today, like it was back then, there are actually no manuals on how to be a parent. And there are no manuals on on how to actually... I mean, there's lots of books around there that will tell you what you should and shouldn't do to avoid emotionally scarring your child for life. But many of these so-called manuals or books, they're not official manuals. They're kind of people having a go at helping people out to try and work out what to do. Uh, you know, what, what advice do you get? You want advice about being a parent? We get this one and it says, you should use a dummy or you shouldn't use a dummy. It's okay to wean in the first month. You shouldn't wean in the first month. It's good to control cry. Don't control cry. I mean, what, what else? I mean, it, it, it just, this is the first month of your child's life, uh, let alone the terrible twos or the transition from preschool to big school or teenage years. As a parent, I wish that I actually could have a big fat manual so that on any keyword I would know from the maker's instructions exactly what to do. And then when I'm really confused about how I can get my teenage son to clean the room, I notice turn, turn to page 754 and there's the answer. <laughs> I, sorry, I had teenage child in here originally, but I just, sorry about that, boys. I didn't mean to pick on you specifically. But the problem is that all we've got really is just some advice from people. We don't actually have access to the manual from the manufacturer. Or do we? Well, in the bit of the Bible we're looking at today, we actually have some instructions from the one who made parenting. Not a lot, but just enough for what we need. Our manufacturer has given us a manual. And not only will we hear advice about parenting, we're also going to hear advice about workplace relations. So stay tuned for that in a moment. 
What we'll see in particular in the second half is we'll learn about how to be a slave and how to be a master, which have a lot of parallels with the way in which the modern workplace works. I'll talk to you more about that in a little while. But overall, this bit of the Bible is going to help us learn more and more about how it is that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit as we submit to one another as to the Lord, which is then worked out in the way that we have our relationships between husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And so now as we look at all of this, I want you to see if you can spot the parallels between what is said from Paul about marriage last week and what is said about parents and children today. See if you can see the parallels. And if you weren't here last week, don't worry, have a listen anyway. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. It says this. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honour your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. If you honour your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we're slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favourites. So what's similar to last week's teaching on marriage? Did you see some similarities there? Well, last week we heard that a wife is to submit to her husband and her husband is to love her like Christ loved the church. His love was to be truly sacrificial, truly other person-centred. And if the husband and wife live this way, then they will have a marriage that follows the maker's instructions. And in the same way, right here, we've seen some instructions to children about how to relate to their parents and an instruction to parents, well, father in particular, about how to relate to their child. We see there how submission looks in the family. And it's remembering, and important to remember all of this, that all people are equally important to God. All people are equally important to God. Even though we have different roles at different times, it doesn't mean that one person's more valuable than another part. We're all part of the same body of Christ, no matter who we are and where we came from. And this is brought home to us in a very simple and subtle way, with one word, the first word of our passage. And that word is the word children. That's enough for now. We we will speed up. But we're just going to look at that one word, children. Now, why does that matter? It matters because Paul, in his letter to the church, speaks to the kids, directly to the kids. He considers them to be equally important in the life of that church. It's not like a kind of a note from the teacher to the parents, you know, oh, you need to tell your kids this. It's actually saying, here's a letter to the kids, read it. The children were an 
equally important part of church. Church are, children are an equally important in church. And they were present in church with everyone from all the other ages. They were an intergenerational church, which is what we are modelling our church on. And so that's why our primary and infant kids have a special time right now during the sermon. But for the first 50 or 60 minutes, they're with us together. And it teaches them something important about church. It teaches us something important about church. But it also shows that children are so valuable that they're directly addressed in the congregation. You know, uh, we, we can't get our heads around this, but kids were very much second-class citizens in the first century. But Jesus made it very clear that he saw them not only as first-class citizens, but in a sense, they're the ones that the grown-ups need to learn from. Remember what he said? Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to him, put the child among them. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become, grown-ups, until you become like a little child, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child, bouncing on my knee, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. Now, we tend to worship kids a bit in our society. But back then, nah, not at all. Until you're a grown-up, don't want to talk to you, not interested, not involved, not in part of the, not even on the radar. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is to be. He lifts kids up and says, you are valuable. And so, children, you are valuable in God's sight. You are valuable in God's sight. And we hold you equally as the adults in every way. Now, I wanted to say that directly to the younger kids, but they've actually gone out. And I debated with Mandy about whether or not I said, well, maybe this is the week to have the kids in for the whole sermon. She said, oh, I can teach them that stuff in a way that's age-specific to them. So they're having their age-specific thing over there at the moment, and they'll get the same stuff. So um, in, a, in, a set, in a sense, this is kind of ironic that I'm talking about kids being in church for the talk, and they're not here, but you have to work with me on this irony. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep the kids in as much as we can and also teach them in a way that is specific to their developmental stage. So that's kind of how we run around here. And over there in the hall right now, they are going to hear this. And right here, we are hearing it. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Quite simply, children need to obey your parents, their parents. Children must obey their parents. And I take it that if you're at high school, this is talking to you. Okay? You're still living at home, under the roof. Obey your parents. And so whether it's mum and dad, or maybe there's just mum, or maybe there's just dad, or a carer, obey them. And so when parents ask children to do something, they just need to do it. And when they ask why, well, we just say, I say so, you know, that's kind of how it works. But when we're told here, children, obey your parents, there's actually a reason. Did you pick that up? The reason is because you belong to the Lord. So why do I have to obey my parents? Because you belong to the Lord. And because you are in the Lord, you should act in a way that submits to one another out of respect for Christ. That's true for all of us. 
And so, kids, obey your parents. And it's more than just that. Not just because you're in Christ, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the way that righteous living looks if you're a kid. You want to know what a righteous life looks like? Obey your parents. You sure whether God thinks that? Ah, it's pretty clear. Obey your parents. Why? Because it's good. It's the right thing to do. A Christian kid needs to be an obedient kid. And, you know, it's sad when you see kids who, who just say, parents, no, get lost. I don't want anything to do with you. That's not what Christian kids are to be like. It's not what you guys are to be like. But the Lord's given kids more motivation to do this, even more. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Check this out. It says, Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honour your father and mother, things will go well for you and you'll have a long life on the earth. Now, this is the fifth commandment. One, two, three, four, five. And the fifth commandment's the first one that says, oh, and I'll give you a promise to go with it. It says, honour your father and mother, and I'll give you a really good reason why. So this particular commandment comes with a promise. You know, we do promises, you know. We say, if you do exercise, you'll get fit. If you do study, you pass your exams. If you save money, you'll grow wealth. At least that's what's supposed to happen. But if you honour your parents, things will go well. It's a pretty good promise, isn't it? You want a good life? Do what mum and dad say. Couldn't have put it better myself. It's just good. Just do it. But there's actually a bit more to that promise than meets the eye. Have a look at the original quote. This is from Deuteronomy 5.16. Honour your father and mother as the Lord God commanded you. Then you will live a long full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, it's almost the same as what's been quoted in, um, in Ephesians, but slightly different. Uh, it's related specifically to the promise that God gave Abraham. He said, Abraham, I've got a special promise for you. You're special. Your people are special. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be in a special land, the promised land. And from that point in time, there's this trajectory throughout the whole Bible. And then you get to Deuteronomy, and the promise continues. It says, hey, kids, honour your parents, and guess what? You're going to be part of that promise too. You're going to be part of the blessings that come in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, we fast forward, and we've got what Jesus did, and then we go beyond that with what we read in Ephesians, in the light of all of that. What does it mean today? Well, the promised land for us today is the place of God's blessing. And it's the place where it is that we get the blessings from God. It's, it's actually, it's the new Jerusalem. It's, it's the new temple. It's a, the promised land is the new Jerusalem where we now dwell with God in the heavenly realms. Like we read in Ephesians 2, Together we are his house, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. That's the place God lives. 
And if you're with Christ, that's the place you live. That's the fulfilment of the promised land. And so, if you want to live long in that land, it basically is saying if you want to live long as a Christian, if you want to live and have a prosperous spiritual life in Christ, if you want to, well, you know, in another way, it's, not, it's like saying you follow this command and you will live out the life that has been given to you by grace. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? That's the richness of this promise. And it's just like all the other stuff we're seeing in Ephesians 4, 5 and 6. God's done this for us, and so we do this. God saved us in Christ, and so kids, obey your parents. Simple enough. But what about the parents? Well, parents turn now, and so it says parents. It actually says fathers. Have a look. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Why doesn't he talk to the parents? Why does he dob in the dads? Well, I think it's got something to do with the way that he talks about marriage. I said last week that that husbands need to take full responsibility for the marriage. And so it's kind of like we heard last week, Adam, who who did a pretty classy job, he said, oh, the apple, oh, the woman you gave me, she gave me the apple. It's like, oh, really? Pass the buck, mate. Not an option. Likewise, bringing out the kids, who's going to be responsible for it? Well, we give you both responsibility. Then you can say, oh, it was her fault. Oh, it's his fault. It's like, no, mate. Dad, you're responsible. This is what we see here. And so dads need to take responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean that mothers aren't involved. A wise dad has the mum involved, of course. And, of course, if you are a single mother, then there's not a dad there for you to be working with to parent your child or children. And so all that's said to fathers there, now it's on your responsibility. So take these words to heart. And indeed, just because dads are being talked about here doesn't mean that it's not talking about mums. It's talking about mums just as much. But the dads are the ones who need to take the main responsibility. And so what is it? Well, the first thing we need to see is that with this responsibility thing is that dads can't just staff this out to the mums. Can't just say, I delegate it to you, just sort it out and tell me how it goes. We need to get our hands dirty. We need to be involved. We need to do it ourselves. But what else do we need to do? Well, in the negative, it says, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. It starts off by saying what we shouldn't do and then says what we should. But firstly, the shouldn't, and that is dads mustn't make their kids angry. How might we do that? Well, I had thought we could ask the kids, tell us how your parents or how's your dad made you angry. We might have that as a sharing question over dinner if you'd like. I actually need to leave early after church, so I won't be able to hear that. <laughs> I, I was trying to think about it. Um, I could also, you could ask the wife too, that she'll give you an idea. But um, what are some, I think, do you keep your promises to your kids by spending special time with them? If you don't, that could make your kids angry, and rightly so. Um, do you treat their mother well by acting kindly and speaking kindly towards them? If you don't, I could see that that would make the kids angry. That would bring the kids to anger. 
Do you overreact to their behaviour by handing out punishments that are too strong? I know I've done that before. You can ask one of my kids, we punished the wrong one once, didn't we? There's a great story there. Uh, I said sorry. I really did say sorry. We still laugh about it, don't we? Yeah. (laughs) And dads, do you kind of act one way at church and then another way at home? And your kids think, hang on a second, who's the real dad? That's the kind of thing that could stir them up to anger. It's pretty intense, this talk, isn't it? But I think God is, well, I know that God is saying, dads, we've got to do our dad stuff in such a way that doesn't provoke our kids to anger. And if you're not sure how you do that, why don't you ask them? But before we go from the negative to the positive, let me give you one little bit of helpful advice I received from somebody else once, and it's been useful, and that is make the most of family holidays. Actually, Say, you know, you don't have to spend much money on it, you, you know, but you can have a holiday at home if you want. But, but actually having a, having a holiday and making a thing of it and saying we're really going to spend time as a family during those holidays, enjoy those holidays, make a thing of it and have that time together. And, and that in itself can, can be a little bit of a, um, almost a pressure release and can help the family function and release some of the anger perhaps. Well, we've gone from the negative now to the positive. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Basically says, Dads, bring your kids up as disciples of Christ. Train your kids to be Christians. The kids need discipline, which which actually sounds a lot like discipleship. I don't know if you've noticed that. And that's because they're linked together. It's about helping the kids become disciples of Christ, which required self-discipline of course but it also requires dad discipline and discipline that's done in a way that is safe and kind Uh, Mandy and I smacked our kids when they were younger and we did so uh, in a way that was sparing and lovingly Um, and when it wasn't we asked for forgiveness it's hard to get that one right isn't it but we wanted to show them love by making it very clear what is right and what is wrong. And from our discipline, we pray that it in fact gave them self-discipline. I think good discipline leads to self-discipline. I've got as many failures as successes and I'm just giving you a little bit of insight here that I I feel a bit humbled having to talk about parenting. But anyway, um, the point is, dads, we need to be bringing our kids up with good discipline and training and we've done we need to do this in such a way that it is bringing them up in the instruction from the Lord, teaching them how to know and love the Lord Uh, but one thing we did learn early on in life was that we needed for our kids to know that mum and dad hunt in a pack and so when one says no then the other means no as well and if you really want to be playing your luck then if you don't get the answer you want, then you can ask one of the other per, you know, the other mum or the dad mum or dad, and then you can try your luck and see what happens. But it nearly is always a deeply straw- flawed strategy. 
And the other thing we've learned is that we, as we fail, we need to say sorry to the kids. We've certainly made mistakes in the past and we want them to know that we have been forgiven by God and that we seek their forgiveness when we fail as well. And I hope that in all of this you can see it applies just as much to mums as much as it does to dads. Because if dads are told not to make the kids angry but to train the kids well, then all of that applies to mums as well. But as I talk about mums and dads, I think it's worth mentioning that in a healthy family, the one flesh relationship of parents is primary. The married relationship actually takes priority. See, on the day that I was married, Mandy and I became one. We were a new person together. And even though we've had four kids, that hasn't changed the primacy of our marriage. I've sometimes heard couples talk about how, you know, well, you know, the kids come first and then we sort of, well, no. As you look at the way in which God leads us and teaches us about marriage and about families, it's clear that the dad has to put the mum first and then the kids come after that. And when that is clear to everybody, things just work better. And I think that's what it means to be one flesh, amongst other things as well. Anyway, there's so much more that could be said about parenting, but we need to move on to the workplace. Um, well, sort of what the workplace is, and this is going to go much shorter than the other bit, because now we turn to slaves and masters. When we think of slaves, we normally think of the horrible slave trade, the last few centuries and so on, when men and women were abducted and sold and treated like animals. When we see slavery in the New Testament, it's, a, it's different to that. It's a lot more, not entirely, but it's a lot more like a worker being under contract. You see, a first century slavery is like, it's not the same as, but it's like modern employment. Now, I can give you all the caveats. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I mean, true, um, slaves didn't have the freedom to leave their masters, although they could actually buy themselves out of slavery and masters often let them go. And many slaves actually had really good relationships with their masters and were treated like a member of the family, but some were not. Slavery was also very common. It was actually just a normal part of life for people in the first century. There are similarities, but it's not identical. And so I want to talk firstly about what the Bible says to slaves and masters and then try and see if we can draw some dots between that and life today in the workplace. It kicks off in verse 5, saying, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Bottom line is this. Slaves need to obey their masters. Simple. And that needs to be modelled on the service of Jesus. It's a pretty big call. In the same way you follow Jesus, you need to follow your earthly master. And they need to do that with true commitment. Have a look in verse 6. It says, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Ultimately, it's an attitude thing. 
It's showing a desire to please the master. And it's consistent and it's honest as though they are watching all the time. That's what they were supposed to do. And they're told to act like good and honest slaves because they're also slaves of Christ. And so they had to do the will of God with their full heart. It's pretty full on to submit to somebody else and to do it in such a big way. But that's what life looks like when you're a slave of Jesus. And it also looks like this. Verse 7. Work with enthusiasm. Your heart in it. As though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Raising the, raising the bar a bit, I think, really. Slaves need to serve masters like they're serving Jesus. Like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Well, do what the slave master says. Really? Yeah, that's how it works. The same enthusiasm, the same passion, the same drive. And this is the motivation. Verse 8. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or whether we are free. Slaves need to serve their masters knowing that there's a reward for doing good, a reward that comes to those who have already been given salvation from Christ. Now, you may or may not be really convinced that the parallels between slaves and masters fits perfectly to employment between bosses and people who work for them in the 21st century, but I think there are enough parallels for this to work. And I think many of the same principles apply. See, when I sign a contract to work, I commit myself to working for that employer. And it's true that I could just walk away and say, oh, forget that. But I've also still got to pay my rent or my mortgage. And if I can't get a job somewhere else, I'm still bound to that. I'm still, in a sense, enslaved. I mean, we like to think I'm totally free. Well, you're not totally free. So as employees, we're a little bit like slaves. And the way in which we work for our bosses is a little bit like the way that slaves need to work for their masters. And so I think that we see a principle here where we do need to work for our boss like we're working for the Lord. And so when your job is bad and your boss is bad, remember you're working for Jesus, even when it's hard. And so he wants, Jesus wants us to be honest, to be reliable, to be hardworking, even when the boss isn't looking. Because Jesus is watching. And because you're working for the master like you're working for Jesus, it means, therefore, that your work has some benefit to it. In fact, as you work hard and honestly you will be rewarded by Jesus for your commitment to your employer. It's interesting, isn't it? There's actually some value in that work. But what if you're a boss? Well, some of us are both employees and bosses at the same time. That's kind of how it works up the whole organisational tree, doesn't it? The whole chart. Here's the word to slave masters, verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you have the same master in heaven and he has no favourites. What does he say? I wonder if you're surprised. He says, in the same way. What does that mean? Well, they need to treat their slaves with respect as well. They need to be slave masters that are kind and loving. 
a bit countercultural, isn't it? Well, how does that look? Well, in particular, it says, don't threaten them. Okay. How might you threaten somebody who works for you? Well, if they were a slave, you'd say, if I don't work harder, then I'll beat you or I'll make you work longer. Don't see too much of that in modern workplaces in Australia, I trust. But if you were a Christian master with a slave in the first century, that was not an option for you. You had to do it differently to everybody else. You had to have your slaves and lead them lovingly, like Christ would lead those slaves. And we don't quite see it here in this, uh, in this verse, in the translation. But you know the word masters, and it appears there twice, right? Masters treat your slaves, and both have the same master in heaven. The word for master, slave master, is the same word that is translated Lord. So Lord Jesus is the same as slave master Jesus. <laughs> so lords, treat your slaves in the same way. You both have the same Lord in heaven. It reminds us there of a connection we may not see in the English. It doesn't matter too much, but it's just a cute little fact there. We need to realise that we need to be people who are kind and loving. Kind and loving, not threatening to them. I think this uh, uh, industrial relations can be complex, and they call it work for a reason, and I understand all of that. But bosses can be bossy, and workers can sometimes be slack, of course. And in the midst of all of this, we need to listen carefully to what God says is the, is the template for good industrial relations. This is it right here. And I'm not quite sure that this is exactly what advice that we would hear if we got in an expert in industrial relations and workplace management. But this is what the one who made us tells us. We're reading from the manual that's been given to us by our maker. And we've also heard in all of this that employers need to be kind and loving. We need to treat our employees in a way that is not threatening. And so if they are working for you as if they're working for Jesus, it will make your life so much easier. But even if they're not, you need to be as Christ to them. So we've heard this advice to employers and employees and to kids and parents and dads in particular. And as we see all of this, we are reading from the manual which has been given to us by our maker. God made marriage, God made families and God even made workplaces in a sense. And so how do we do it? We should lead like Jesus in love. We should serve like Jesus in love and we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and above all in all of this we need to seek and offer forgiveness seek and offer forgiveness we need to be ready to say to our employees I'm sorry I was harsh with you we need to be able to say to our kids I'm sorry I made you angry And kids, you need to be ready so that when your parents actually step up and say sorry, that you don't say, yeah, don't worry about it, or huh. You actually say, I forgive you. 
And if you've got a boss who's treated you badly and they come to you and they say, I'm sorry, then the right Christian response is to say, I forgive you. Because in all of this, if we are going to emulate Christ, if we're going to submit to one another out of reverence and respect for Christ, this is what it looks like. Because in all of this, we need to know that it is Christ that we're serving. We need to consider Christ. For as we've been told in the previous chapter, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let me pray. Our loving Father, as we hear this word from you, we are aware that we have failed in so many ways. As children, we have not always submitted to our parents and obeyed them. For that we are sorry. As fathers and mothers, we know that we have not always treated our children in a way that has spared them from being angry. And so we are sorry for that. As slaves or employees, we know that we haven't always followed our masters, obeying them as though you're watching and they're not. And we're sorry. And as masters, employers, we, we recognise that we've not always treated our staff well. And for that we are sorry. Lord, as we talk about these things, we are stirred up with all sorts of feelings and, and regret and sadness. And, and we thank you, Father, that as people who are saved by Christ, we are forgiven. And we thank you for that powerful forgiveness and pray that you might lead us to truly love and to truly serve so that we might serve as Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jembrew Anglican Church. For more information, head to jembrewanglican.com.